Hallelujah. Aren't you thankful for the mercy of God forever? That's a long time. Amen. Your mercy is forever. Amen. This morning, we're going to continue our study through uh, the book of Hebrews, the 11th chapter. And as we, as we do so, we're going to come to our fourth consecutive example of the faith of the life of Abraham. And I say a life of Abraham because one of those examples included Sarah. But four consecutive examples drawn from the life of Abraham. One thing about those four examples is that they focus, the first three, have focused much of the time on faith in the hereafter. With eyes of faith, we've stood together and looked ahead to that heavenly city that Abraham, the father of the faithful, saw in faith. And, and we, we've anticipated with him our heavenly reward that Peter describes as an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away. But this morning, in this fourth example of faith from Abraham's life, we turn our focus to manifestations of faith in the middle of a trial, in the middle of a test. We're going to read a passage of Scripture that says that God tried Abraham. God tested him. When you try something, you test it to see if it can withstand the pressure of a test. Amen? And Abraham was tested by God, and he faithfully endured the test. And the Word of God challenges us this morning to, to consider what we will do when we find ourselves in the crucible of testing. What happens when the Word of the Lord or the promise of God puts you in an impossible situation? Can your faith stand the test? Our example this morning is found the faith of Abraham, who when God challenged him to offer his promised son to him as a sacrifice, flinched not, but offered up his son just as God had requested. Reading from, if you'll stand with me, Hebrews chapter 11. Three verses of scripture this morning, Hebrews 11 and 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Would you pray with me, Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you for your goodness and your mercy. And I'm asking in the name of Jesus, you'd allow the word of God to impact our lives. Let it touch us today, Lord. Let it challenge our faith and let it challenge us to grow, Lord. In the precious name of Jesus, would you say amen? Amen. You may be seated. So by faith, Abraham, when he was tried. The first thing you need to know this morning is that God will test your faith. Amen. From the outset, we need to get our test or our trial in the proper perspective. God's not going to bring anything into your life that is intended to destroy your faith. Amen? The trials and tests that happen in this life 
uh, are intended to strengthen your faith. They're intended to, to bring your faith to another place, a higher place. Amen. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, uh, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Amen. So Peter, in his letter, had also been focused on heaven, much like the Hebrew writer. But then just like the Hebrew writer, he shifts his focus uh, to the immediate trials and tests. Uh, and the trials, he tells us, uh, are not for our detriment. Uh, they're there for our good. Peter uses the imagery of refined gold. Gold was the most precious metal known in that hour, that time, in that age. And he likens our faith to gold that is purified by fire. Our faith is purified through various, various kinds of trials and tests in our life. But our faith will be proven, according to Peter, in that one of these days it will deliver us from every fiery trial at the coming, uh, second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So Peter's point, much like the writer of Hebrews, is to tell us that our faith in God is more valuable to us than anything this world has to offer us. Uh, and God will test our faith. Uh, and you'll have the opportunity, just like Abraham had, to go back to the country from whence you came. Uh, amen. God will test you, but he'll never test you beyond what you can bear. The smelter doesn't destroy the gold. He could. He could burn it up, but he doesn't. It's a controlled fire, and he refines it, and he brings out of it the richness and the purity that's in it. Listen to what Paul promised in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. I will apologize. I did not give my scriptures to Brother Dennis, and so he's going to be running behind me all morning long. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. When it comes to trials and tests, we got to recognize that God's purpose in our life is not to destroy our faith, but rather to prove that it's genuine, that, that he proves it not for his benefit, but for our benefit, as well as for the benefit of a watching world. Amen. Your faith is strengthened uh, when you come out the other side uh, of a fiery trial and your faith is still intact. Uh, but not only is your faith strength and there are people who are watching your life a world that's watching you and marvels at the grace of God in your life when he delivers you from that fiery furnace untouched by the flames when you come out the other side and your faith is intact amen the story of Abraham offering Isaac on the sacrificial altar is a pivotal story that is of great importance in the life of Abraham but it's mentioned only twice in the New Testament. First of all, in our text this morning, and secondly, in the book of James. And both times it's used as an example of faith that 
manifest itself in obedience. Listen to what James says in James chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 21 through 23. James chapter 2. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seeing thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Let me tell you where Abraham was called. We sing that song, I am a friend of God, and I'm thankful that God's my friend. But let me tell you where he became the friend of God. It was in an altar sacrifice when he laid everything down. When he put everything, all his hopes and all his dreams and all that he had on an altar of sacrifice. And when Abraham offered Isaac on that altar, it was a demonstration of his faith. Uh, Amen. That's consistent with the Old Testament narrative of the account, which is recorded in Genesis chapter 22, reading from the first verse of Genesis chapter 22. It says, and it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. It says that God did tempt Abraham or test Abraham. Now, let me say this real quickly. God doesn't tempt people to sin. The scripture is explicit about that. Amen. That's not what God does. But God does put us in situations that are intended to test our faith. He does put us in places where we're obedience is required and it would be easy not to obey abraham in his obedience by his works by the demonstration of his faith in what he not just what he said he didn't just say i believe you god Uh, he he said i'm going to act on what i believe amen and abraham's obedience showed the quality of his commitment to god when he was tested he was found faithful Now, there are a lot of points in the story of Abraham and Isaac, but the Hebrew author focuses on Abraham's indomitable faith in the promises of God. God promised Abraham. Long after his body was past the ability to produce an heir, that he would have many children. And when at long last that child of promise was born, Isaac was born, he was the fulfillment of the promise. Everything else that God promised Abraham, a people that number beyond the seas, the sands of the seashore and the stars of the sky, everything else, a great nation that would bless all the earth, that would possess the Canaan land, everything else that God promised Abraham was to be fulfilled in the life of Isaac. All the promise was contained uh, in Isaac, all of Abraham's hopes, all of his dreams, uh, everything that he had invested his life into, amen, was embodied in that special child. But the second verse of Genesis 22 tells us, and he, he being God, said, take now thy son, thine only son Isaac whom thou lovest and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. So God refers to Isaac as Abraham's 
only son, the one he loves with all his heart. Uh, amen. Likewise, the Hebrew writer calls him Abraham's only begotten son. Uh, but you and I know that in one sense, Isaac was not Abraham's one and only son. He had Ishmael. Amen. And later on, after Sarah died, that man who was too old to produce children had at least six more sons that are recorded in the scripture. So uh, Isaac isn't Abraham's one and only son. It's far as that goes. But Isaac is unique because the lineage of the Messiah, all the promises that God's made to Abraham, everything is going to pass through Isaac and no other. Amen. Whenever God called, called him and told him, I'm going to give you a son. Ishmael's not the one. Abraham argued with God. He tried to get God to accept Ishmael. Amen. But God said, Ishmael is not the one. Amen. I'm going to give you a son and his name is Isaac. And and I'm going to pour my promise through Isaac and no other. So Isaac is unique. In God's eyes, the other sons are completely inconsequential. Isaac is Abraham's one and only. His only begotten son. Because he's the sole heir to the promise. That's the real test of Abraham's faith. Not just that he was commanded to offer his son as a burnt offering. What you think about that? A burnt offering is consumed wholly by fire. A burnt offering unto the Lord. But the fact that this son that God asked him to lay on the altar was the one and only heir to the promise. Uh, Isaac was unique uh, and he was irreplaceable. Uh, the fulfillment of God's promise depends uh, on Isaac's survival. Amen. If Isaac dies, uh, then how then would the promise of God ever be fulfilled in the life of Abraham? That's the true test of Abraham's faith. What was he to do? How could the promise of God on the one hand and the command of God on the other hand be reconciled together when they appear to be completely incompatible? Amen. This hand says that Isaac, in all of your hopes, and all of your dreams, and all of your promise, uh, is going to come through Isaac. Uh, and this hand says, go lay him on an altar and offer him as a burnt offering unto the Lord. How could the promise of God and the command of God be so incompatible? Think about it. What God promised is in direct conflict with what God asked him to do. That's what the Hebrew writer wants you to recognize. How are you going to resolve that? What are you going to do when you're in that place? You see, Abraham had no doubt that the same God who had given him the promise uh, had also required of him to sacrifice Isaac on the altar. Uh, and our lesson this morning revolves around the question of the conflict uh, in Abraham's life between what God promised that he would do and what Abraham could actually see about to happen with his own eyes. Amen? That's a struggle we all face. You feel certain that God has promised certain things to you. Some of you are certain God's promised a spouse that would be filled with the Holy Ghost. And yet daily you live with a spouse that has no real desire for the things of God. What are you to do? 
Amen. What are you to do when God gives you a promise and life mocks your promise? What do you do when God speaks a word and everything you see is in defiance of that word? I remember a dear old lady years ago in the Bono Church. Sister May Medlock faithfully prayed for her husband for years and years and years. She came to church all by herself all those years. And she was a prayer warrior. She knew how to touch heaven. And she was certain that God had promised her that he was going to save her husband. But the years passed. And they got older. And age finally caught up with them. He, as an old man, was diagnosed with emphysema. And, and became reliant upon oxygen. And then was diagnosed with prostate cancer and giving a very, given a very short amount of time to live. What do you do? But God promised me. What do you do? This dear old sister just never stopped praying. It was un not uncommon at all for her to lift her hand and say, Pastor, pray for my husband. I believe God's going to save his soul. The doctor said he's just got a couple of weeks to live, but I believe God's going to save his soul. Then one Sunday morning, shortly after the diagnosis, her husband said, I think I want to go to church with you this morning. He came on that Sunday morning, and God filled him with the gift of the Holy Ghost right there. And that night, we put him in the water in the name of Jesus Christ, oxygen tank and all. Amen. He was buried in the name of Jesus. Came out of that water again, speaking in tongues as the Spirit of God gave the utterance. Uh, amen. God saved that woman's husband. And less than a month later, I think just about two weeks later, we buried him. Amen. But God made a promise. And faith said, I'm not going to let go of a promise. I don't care what I see with my eyes. I don't care what the doctor says. I don't care what the lawyer says. I don't care what the economy says. I don't care what my, what my boss says. I don't care what's going on anywhere else in my life. God made me a promise. Amen. not going to let go of my promise. Listen, if God promised it, he's going to do it. There will be revival in Lake City. Come on, somebody. There will be revival in Lake City. There will be a harvest of souls. Uh, this church isn't big enough uh, to hold the revival that God wants to give us. Uh, and it'll happen no matter what I see with my eyes. Uh, it's going to happen no matter what I understand with my intellect. Uh, it's going to happen no matter what I can reason out in and of myself. Because God promised it. Uh, the man of God stood in this pulpit uh, and said, You're going to reap from seed uh, that you didn't plant. Uh, you're going to reap a harvest, uh, amen, from seed that you didn't sow. Uh, God's going to bless his church uh, with revival. I don't know about you, my friend, but it doesn't matter what I can see with my eyes. Uh, it doesn't matter what's going on around. I'm hanging on to the promise of God. Uh, I believe what God said. That's the point that the Hebrew writer is making. When Abraham was confronted with a conflict... In between the promise of God and the thing that he was asked to do, when he saw a conflict in between what he could see and what he could understand about the promise of God, Abraham handled it as if it was God's problem, not his. It's up to God, not Abraham. 
to figure out how to reconcile the promise with the command. Uh, Abraham's only job is faithful obedience. Uh, Abraham's only job is to do what God told him to do. Abraham's only job is just to keep on keeping on by faith. Uh, And it's God's business uh, to reconcile the circumstance uh, with the promise. Uh, It's God's business uh, to make sense uh, out of that which seems impossible. Everything else is in God's hand. So even though there's a profound contradiction from Abraham's point of view, he trusted that since the same God that commanded the sacrifice was the God that made the promise, God must have known something he didn't know. So when God commanded him to offer his son, his only son, as a burnt offering unto the Lord, he packed his bags. He gathered his servants and his son and said, Come, we must go to Mount Moriah and offer sacrifice unto the Lord. Amen. Abraham set out in faith to offer his only begotten son on an altar because the contradiction isn't mine to solve. It's in God's hands. And if God said do it, I'm going to do it. The verb that's offered in the in the Greek text is in a specific Greek tense, which indicates that when Abraham offered Isaac in the Greek in Hebrews chapter eleven and verse seventeen, that it he that in purpose and intent he had already offered Isaac on the altar. In other words, we we know the sacrifice was never carried out. But Abraham didn't know that. Abraham didn't know that God was going to intervene. And whenever Abraham raised that knife and steeled himself to plunge it into his only son, the Hebrew writer is telling us uh, that it was as good as done. It was as good as finished. Uh, If God had not stopped him at the last possible moment then Abraham would have offered his son Isaac uh, on that altar because his faith said I understand it doesn't make sense Uh, I understand I can't reason it out uh, but my faith says uh, the God that made the promise uh, is the God that governs my circumstance uh, and I'm just going to trust him the greatest testament to Abraham's faith is his ability to trust in what he cannot see What he cannot understand. Remember, that's the premise of this whole chapter. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Amen. It's those things that we can't see. It's those things that we we can't understand. His promise depended on this child, his one and only son. Yet he was already in the process of sacrifice. He was already in the process of of bringing that life to an end when God stopped him, when God stepped in. He had faith that somehow God was going to make good on his promise no matter what happened on that mountain that day. Amen. That kind of forward-facing faith is what the Hebrew writer is challenging us to manifest in our own lives. When the word of the Lord seems to be in direct conflict, amen, with what's going on in our life and what's going on in our circumstance, our situation, what will we do? 
Abraham trusted in the unseen and did what God told him to do. The next verse, verse 18, says, Of whom it was said, that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That, that verse draws its quote from Genesis chapter 21 and verse 12. Genesis 21 and 12. And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman. This is whenever uh, the, the, the bondwoman is threatening to leave with her son and Sarah is telling Abraham, kick him out of the camp. And in the middle of all that, Sarah has said unto thee, in the middle of all that Sarah says, so Sarah's asking the, the bondwoman, the child out, hearken unto her voice. Do what she said do. For in Isaac shall thy seed be called. For in Isaac shall thy seed be called. It furthers what that quote does is it explains the nature of Abraham's faith. God said that all of Abraham's promised seed was contained in Isaac. And now God asked Abraham to lay Isaac on an altar. What a conundrum. Yet we're struck by the powerful image of Abraham standing over that altar, knife raised, beginning to plunge it downward even as the hand of God arrests him and stops him. What a marvel of obedient faith. Abraham is going to do whatever God asks him to do. And finally, verse 19 says, Accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Now, here's the reason why Abraham was ready to go through with the offering. He reasoned out. That verb accounted means that he reasoned it out. And, and his reasoning told him that God was able to raise Isaac up even from the dead. We see that borne out in the Genesis account when Abraham left his servants behind while he and Isaac went up to the place of sacrifice. He left them at the foot of the mountain. And this is what he said to them in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 5. And Abraham said unto his young men, those being his servants, Abide ye here with the donkey and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you Abraham expected that he was going to come back with Isaac amen when he left the presence of his servants he told them you just go ahead and get ready if you're cooking dinner this evening make it for two of us because two of us are going up that mountain and I don't know how but two of us are coming back down that mountain amen Isaac is going to be offered as a sacrifice unto the Lord a burnt offering amen and the only way he can come back down that mountain is if God who can who could he you know you can think about God raising resurrecting for the dead a, a dead man but a man that's been burnt to ashes. But Abraham said, I believe that the God who made me the promise is able to raise him back even from the dead. And Abraham reckoned that since the fulfillment of the promise depended on Isaac's survival, that God was bound. God had to resurrect Isaac's life back to him. The only thing 
in between Abraham and the promise of God was Isaac. And Isaac is the conduit that gets him there. And if God's going to keep his word, and there's no question in Abraham's mind that God's going to keep his word, then Isaac's life has to be preserved. The amazing thing about all that is this. Up until that point, there is no record in Scripture that God had ever raised anybody from the dead. Now, I say that not to say that, that God wasn't able to before, but I say that to say that Abraham didn't have some past event in his frame of reference that demonstrated God's ability to raise somebody from the dead. Abraham just had to believe in what he'd never seen, had to believe in what he'd never heard of, had to believe in what had never before occurred, kind of like Noah and the, and the rain, amen, kind of like every, every other example we've given. It's all the same. They've got to believe in what they cannot see. And so Abraham just had to believe that God could do anything. God can, whatever it takes, God's going to do it. So he surrendered to God that which was most precious to him. And the writer says that in a figure or in a type, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. As far as Abraham was concerned, Isaac was as good as dead. As far as Abraham was concerned, death wasn't the issue. Amen. He was about to take the boy's life because God was going to preserve him. God was going to bring him back. That's the kind of faith that we're talking about this morning. Faith that counts on God to keep his promise even when it seems humanly impossible for him to do so. When he was faced with an apparent contradiction, one that could not be resolved on its own, Abraham said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to trust God. And his faith was proven by the fact that from God's point of view, there never was a contradiction. God was never going to let Isaac die on that altar. He was always going to preserve the life of Isaac. But Abraham didn't know that. Amen. By faith, Abraham first had to lay his promise. The thing he coveted the most in this world on an altar and offer it to God. Think about it. When God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees just a few verses ago, he asked him to surrender his past. Leave your country and your kindred and your family and your friends and everything you have. All of your past, let it go. Surrender all of your past to me. And some of us, we, we, we don't have a problem with surrendering our past to God. But when God summoned Abraham to Mount Moriah, he asked him to surrender his future as well. Everything that you've hoped for. Everything that you dreamed of, everything that you vested your life in, he asked him to put it all on the altar. That's quite an ask. Amen? A lot could be said about the typology that's present in this verse. What God asked Abraham to do and what Abraham nearly did was a foreshadowing of what would happen on Calvary. Both the sacrifice of the only begotten son and the substitution of a ram at the last minute both foreshadow the cross. God loved you and me enough that he was manifest in the flesh and allowed himself to be sacrificed for our sins. But at the same time, he took on the role of a substitutionary sacrifice. He did it for us. And like the ram ultimately died for Isaac, Jesus Christ died for us. And never had the words of Abraham been more true 
than at the cross. Abraham told his son, Genesis chapter 22 and verse 8. And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. Isaac said, Daddy, where's the lamb? I see you've got the wood, and I see you've got the kindling, and I see you've got the knife, and I, we've done this before. I know what sacrifice is, and I don't see a lamb anywhere. Daddy, where's the lamb? And Abraham said, don't worry, son. God's going to provide himself a lamb. God knows what he's doing. We're just going to trust him. We're just going to take a little walk of faith up this mountain together. And I'm going to ask you to do something that I, I know Father would ever ask their son to do. I'm going to ask you to let me bind you and trust you like a sacrifice. And I'm going to lay you on the altar. Amen. And I'm going to offer you unto God. But we're going to come down this mountain together because my promise is invested in you. The question this morning is simple. Do you have that kind of faith? Can you find that kind of faith in your life? The faith that surrenders everything to Jesus. Not just your past. Not just your present. But all of your future as well. Can you put your life completely in the hands of God? Watch this. Abraham was tested at other points in his life. If you read the account of Abraham in the book of Genesis... You'll see that he passed some tests and others he failed miserably. You remember the stories and unfolds and Abraham messes up pretty good sometimes. But in all of those things, his faith is being tested and tried and built. And it, it takes all of that progression of, of weaker faith becoming stronger to bring Abraham to the ultimate test of his faith. And the ultimate test of his faith is at Mount Moriah. That's the, the pinnacle of his faith. I'm here to tell somebody in this house on a Sunday morning the pinnacle of faith is sacrifice. When you're willing to lay it all on an altar and say, God, I surrender everything to you. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24, and this is second to last scripture I'm going to read because I'm going to get verse 25 too. Matthew 16 and 24, Then Jesus said unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is what God is asking each and every one of us to do. Lay down our own life at an altar. Surrender everything to him. Surrender your past. Surrender your present. And surrender your future to God. Then watch and see as the miraculous provision of God unfolds in your life. If you can give up your hopes and dreams, if you can lay them on an altar and surrender them to God, you'll gain much more than you ever hoped or dreamed for. Matthew 16, 25 said, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Would you stand with me? The key to finding life lays in losing your life. What a paradox. What a conundrum. The question this morning is what will you and I do with the contradiction? The key to eternal life is surrendering my life. But if I give up my life, then I'll find it. 
The question is, are you willing to surrender your life? Are you willing to lose it in order to gain it? It doesn't make sense. You can't reason it out. Two plus two doesn't equal four in this case. On the one hand, there's surrender everything. On the other hand, there's gain everything. And the two are incompatible. But God said, if you'll obey me, if you'll lay it all on an altar, if you'll surrender everything to me, I'm going to give you everything your heart ever desired. I'm going to walk with you all the days of your life. You're never going to worry. You're never going to have to worry about whether or not you'll be provided for. Amen. You just focus on serving me and all these things are going to be added to you, everything you need. But first, you've got to be willing to lay down your life. First, you've got to be willing to sacrifice your past and your present and, yes, your future, all your hopes, all your dreams, all the steps you haven't taken yet, all the journeys that are not completed yet. All the places that you are going in your life, everything has to be laid on an altar, surrendered all to Jesus. Then, and only then, will you find what life is all about. Then and only then will you walk in the blessing and the provision of God. He'll take care of you. And what you gain will be so much more than what you lost. So we get it all backwards. We measure the sacrifice of giving for living for God and things we got to give up. We measure our, the sacrifice, and, and it's so great, the things we've got to surrender. You know, I can't, can't keep talking the way I used to talk. I, you know, if I'm going to live for God, I'm going to represent God. I've got, I've got to change some things about my attitude. I've got to change some things about my walk and my life. And, and we tend to measure that in the basis of, of what I have to surrender. What you're neglecting to look at is what you stand to gain. Because what you stand to gain is greater than anything you have to surrender. I'm asking the church, I don't care how long you've been in, in the church or how long you've been in the presence of God, served God, been filled with the Spirit. Every one of us could use the opportunity this morning to bend our knee at an altar again and say, Lord, I surrender. I surrender. I lay it all on an altar, Lord. Don't let me ever get my dreams and my hopes ahead of your will and your purpose. I surrender to you, Jesus. Would you find a place of prayer this morning? Would you call out to him? Would you tell him, Lord Jesus, I surrender everything to you.